Well, my name is Jonathan Mitchell. I'm the student minister here at New Branch, and uh, it's an honor to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. Uh, so I'm thankful for this opportunity, and I, and I pray that, that our God and our King would be lifted high and magnified as we, as we study His Word together. As we begin our time this morning, uh, I've got a picture for us uh, on the screen, um, and uh, in case you don't know exactly uh, what this is, this is a picture of uh, Main Street of Disney World's Magic Kingdom. Um, do I have any Disney fans out there? Oh, yeah, it is. I see you. I see you. Yeah, we, we've got some Disney fans out there. I know that. So uh, I, I like Disney as well. It's a, it's a magical place. It's unique. It's like whenever you walk through those gates, you're just like in a whole different world. Uh, you're in a bubble, and all of the daily stresses and the, and the grind of life is like out of sight and out of mind, and you're just in this special place and in a different world. Sorry about that. Um, so you're, you're in a different place, a different world, and uh, it's, it's just a special and unique and magical place. And there are many reasons why Disney World is so great, so special. And there are several of those reasons in this picture. Uh, first of all, you see Cinderella's castle, which is probably the most iconic uh, thing in Disney World. You see that at the center of the picture. And, you, and, and as everybody walks in, they, they you know, got to turn around and take the selfie with the castle in the background and post that so, and tell everybody, hey, I'm in Disney World. Uh, you, you also uh, have all the shops on Main Street with all kinds of Disney souvenirs. You also have all of the decorations in this uh, specific picture. Uh, they're decorated for Christmas, and so uh, Disney goes above and beyond with all their decorations, especially Christmas time. It just makes it even more magical and, and special. And then you also have the characters. Uh, you have Pluto. You have Minnie Mouse uh, in the front uh, with, with some people posing uh, for pictures with them. Uh, kids love to, to get the high five, get a hug, or get a picture with the characters. Uh, maybe some of you enjoy getting pictures with those characters as well and getting a hug from them. So Disney World is it's an amazing place to go. Uh, it is special in so many ways but yet we only see a few of those reasons why in this picture up on the screen. There are so many other reasons that Disney is this magical and special place. You've got all of the rides. You've got in, in, in Magic Kingdom, Splash Mountain, uh, the Space Mountain, the teacups, whatever your ride is. You've got all of those rides. You can't see that in this picture. You've got the fried turkey legs and, uh, and, and cream cheese filled Mickey Mouse pretzels. Uh, you've got the, uh, the fireworks show. You can't see that in this picture. You've got all the parades. You can't see those either. Uh, you've got the, the family memories that you make and the bonding experience you have with family and friends as you, as you go to Disney World. You can't quite see that or capture that here in this picture. And further, you can't see the other parks of Disney World. Uh, you've got Animal Kingdom, you've got Hollywood Studios, and you've got Epcot. You can't see those in this picture either. I could go on and on and on about so many great things about Disney World. So this picture, it only tells a, a, a small part of the, the specialness, the uniqueness of Disney World. And this morning in Psalm 93, 
this, the psalmist is going to paint a picture of, of who God is. Uh, yet we're only going to see a few of those characteristics of who God is. In the same way, uh, in this picture with Disney World, we see a few of those reasons why it's so great. And there are many other ones that we could go continue to go on and list. And, you know, Disney World is great. It's magical. It's special. But our God, it is, he is far, far, far greater and more special and more unique and, and all of those things than Disney World. And so may we be enamored with, may we be in awe of, may we respond in worship with how great our God is as we see a picture of who God is this morning in Psalm 93. Well, let's look at Psalm 93 together. Please follow in your uh, copy of God's word with me. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Would you please pray with me? God, would you open up our eyes to see your beauty, to see your majesty, to see how glorious you are, the sovereign king of the universe. God, would you, would you open up our eyes? Would you open up our ears to hear who you are this morning? And God, would we respond rightly in worship and adoration and praise of who you are? We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, we are going to see uh, five characteristics of God uh, and that, that I want to, to draw our attention to this morning. And the first one being that God is majestic. God is majestic. In, in these, the psalmist describes it this way, that, that God is robed in majesty. Uh, he is clothed in majesty. It's, it's a poetic way of pointing to the truth that God is glorious, uh, talking about the glory of God. And really, this, the, the glory of God is, is referring to the holiness of God on display or the excellencies of God on display, being made visible. That's, that's the glory of God, the, the excellencies of God being put on display for us to see. And really, the, the following four characteristics are going to come uh, from the glory of God. They're, they're going to describe or help us to see a picture of the glory of God. And so we, those are some of the ways that God visibly manifests himself, has manifests his glory to us through the following characteristics after, after this one. And I, and I do want to make note here that, that really the chief way that God has revealed his glory to us is through his son, Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so the chief way that God has revealed his glory, has put his glory on display, is through his son, Jesus Christ. So Disney World, back to our, our picture. Disney World, it's a, it's a majestic place. It's magical. But again, the glory of God is one million or one billion times far greater than the glory of Disney World. So God is majestic. He, is, he has put his glory on display for us to see. And again, these next four traits are going to help us to, to see uh, a picture of God's glory. So the second characteristic here is the, is the reality that God is mighty. God is strong. This is derived from, from military language. So talking about uh, an army or a group of soldiers, uh, this, this power and this strength that comes, uh, uh, that's represented there. Uh, it's in 1D, it says that God is girded with strength. He is clothed with power or, or strength. And this points to the, to the reality that, that our God is omnipotent, meaning that he is all-powerful. He is mighty. Look at verses 3 and 4 here. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. In these verses, there is an analogy between the rushing waters and the, the, the power of God, the might of God. Whenever I was a, a kid, or, or still my family still goes there, every year they go to the same beach, Garden City uh, Beach, just south of Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. Every summer they go there, and, our, and, and I went there growing up. And we, we have a family vacation, and uh, we were there the summer of 2009. And there was this baseball team that was staying, you know, a, a little bit down the beach from us. And they were all about, you know, teenagers, about 13 years old. And they were out swimming. A couple of them were out swimming in the ocean, uh, specifically three of them. And all of a sudden, this, this undercurrent comes, and all three of the boys are, are in danger. And the lifeguard runs out there and is able to save two of them. And the other one... He got sucked into that undercurrent and, and drawn out into the ocean. The, the boy's dad ran out as fast as he could, broke his leg as he's trying to go and, and save his son. And unfortunately, they weren't able to save him. And so myself, some of my family members, and a whole bunch of other people on the beach, we, we all like interlocked arms, and we were all walking back and forth trying to find his body. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to do so. I, I still can picture the, the mother of the son just sitting on the beach, just weeping her eyes out. I mean, it, it, was, it was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. And really, 
you know, that, that's a morbid story, but really whenever we talk about the, the power of water, really that's, that's, what, that's what it does. It, it, it destructs life. It destructs, you know, our houses and material things. Think about a hurricane, uh, the, the, the power of the waters of the hurricane and the, the floods that come in, the rain that comes down. It drowns us. It, 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 it destroys homes, uh, all kinds of stuff. It, it's, it's really just... Uh, that, that's, that's the unfortunate nature of the power of water, unless you're talking about the power of water putting out a fire. And so, so this was a very, very sad story, but I tell it to show us the, the power of water. This undercurrent just unfortunately sucked this young boy, this teenage boy, 13 years old, into the ocean. They were in like knee-deep water, and they get, he got sucked out into the ocean, but the verse here says that our God is even mightier than those waters. Our God is more powerful than that undercurrent or a Category 5 hurricane that plows through the states. Our God is more mighty than these rushing waters. Though waters rise up and, and the, the, they pound the seashores and they cause people to drown, our God is still more mighty than they are. If you think about Matthew 8, 23 through 27, this is the story of Jesus and his disciples being out on the sea. And this powerful storm comes upon them. And, you know, of course, what is Jesus doing? He's just, he's just sleeping, just chilling. And his disciples are freaking out. They're like, Jesus, do something. This storm is, is going to drown us. These waves are coming up. Save us. And Jesus can, you know, he, you know, gets up and he rebukes the wind. He rebukes the sea and there's this calm. And so our, our God, Jesus Christ, the Lord, is more powerful than the waters of the sea. He spoke, rebuked them, and immediately these seas were calmed. If you look at Matthew 7, 24 through 27, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is speaking here, and he talks about these two different foundations, one of them being the rock, which is representative of, of Christ himself and, and Christ's teachings, and then the other one, building the house on the sand, which, again, is not a firm foundation. And he talks about how the, the rain comes down, the waves come in, and the wind blows, and the one on the sand, of course, falls. But the one built on the rock, the one built on Christ and his word, they are safe. Because our God is more mighty than they are. Our God is powerful. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. God's power is not merely a, an intellectual doctrine that we agree with in our minds. It is a doctrine to be experienced in our lives. It is something that we are to, to truly believe so much that we would act upon it. It is not just something that we say, yeah, God's all-powerful, 
but I'm not going to trust him and, and as, I, as I navigate these difficult seasons in my life. As you pray to God, do you truly believe that he has the power to work in your life and in my life, in the lives of those around us? Do we truly believe that? Or as you pray, do you doubt God's power? Do you not truly believe it? God is powerful, and he does work in our lives. He does work in our lives. I know it. I was a, I, and those of you who are in Christ, you're dead sinners rebelling against God, and there was nothing in ourselves that chose him. It was God's power that gripped us and saved us from our sin. And even today, he empowers us. The Holy Spirit indwells in us. God dwells in us and empowers us to fight against our sin. He empowers us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So church, we must not just agree intellectually with the omnipotence of God. Rather, we must also experience the omnipotence of God in our lives. One of the ways that God displays his power is through creation. And that's the third uh, characteristic we see of God here is that God is creator. God is creator. He is the one who established the heavens and the earth. The earth was not here by mere chance. It was God speaking and choosing to create something. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in the ensuing verses, God speaks and things come into existence. There was nothing and then there was something because God chose in his power to create. In verse 1, the psalmist says here that the world was created and it was established and it shall never be moved. In other words, God is the one who sustains the, the world as well as time goes on. He is the creator and he is the sustainer. Bob actually read this passage in uh, our call to worship this morning, Psalm 104. Turn just a couple of pages over there and I want to read those verse, some of those verses again. Psalm 104, verses 5 through 15. You can follow along with me. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they might, may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth 
and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So God is the one who told the mountains to rise and the valleys to go down and the waters to flee. And he's the one who set the boundaries for the waters. God is the one who causes the springs to gush forth to provide water for the animals. God is the one who causes it to rain down so that the plants and the grass would grow so that we would have food. God is the the provider of, of the food for us as well. He's the provider for our drink as well. God is the one who is behind all of this. This passage is rich with the fact that God is our sustainer. He is the provider for us. He's the provider for all of the world. The, the grass of the fields, the plants of the field, the animals, the birds, and yes, even us. He is the provider and he is the sustainer. God is the creator and the sustainer. And as we talk about God here, this is, this is, this is point, let me remind us, this is the, the triune God. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see in Genesis 1, the Father and the Spirit hovering over the waters. And then in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, we see Christ. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are the ones who created everything and now are the sustainers of all things. This, this, this truth, it, it, it refutes this. Uh, many of you have probably experienced, encountered some of this, the, the New Age teachings that just ask, the, I'm going to ask the universe for this X, Y, or Z, whatever it may be, and, and there, that the universe is going to provide this for me. Well, our God is the creator of the universe. He is the one who is the provider. He's the one who is the sustainer. He is the one who is behind the universe. And so the, the universe itself is not going to provide X, Y, or Z in your life. This is, this is, this is God who is, the, who is the provider. And so this refutes that new age teaching that is, is rampant uh, around us. Another application from this truth that I, that I think we, we, need to, uh, we need to get to is that we ought to trust God. Trust God for his provision. And this is a difficult thing to do at times, and we all wrestle with this at times. I know I do, for sure. But he, he provides the water and the food for the animals. As Matthew 6 says, he provides for the birds of the air. And, and then he goes on, how much more will he provide for you and for me, those whom he loves, those whom he has made in his own image? How much more will he provide for us. And this doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect and easy peasy, all those things. It's, it's not, not going to go exactly how we are planning it to, but God does provide for us in different ways. And I think in light of our, our study, our base group study, our, our sermon series as well, I think one specific 
uh, application with that, I think God uses various means to provide for his people. And I think one of those being his, his people, providing for other people in, in the church. And so do you know the needs of those around you, specifically even within your base groups? Do you know the needs of those around you? Uh, and how might God be leading you to, to meet those needs of, of the people in your community, the people in our church? Because that is one of the ways in which God does provide for his people is, is through us serving one another. And this isn't always monetary. It could be, but it could be just serving. It could be helping out a single mother. It could be spending time. It could just be praying for somebody. It could be counseling somebody. This isn't all material things. This is this is, a, this is, this is, the list could go on and on. It could be spiritual. Um, it could just be time, need friendship. What are the needs of those around you? And how might God be leading you to, uh, to provide for, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? So I think that that's a, a specific application for us, especially in light of our base group discussion and, and also our sermon series. So not only is God all-powerful and the creator, but God is also trustworthy. He is trustworthy. Look at verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. God's decrees are, are talking about his precepts, his commands, uh, his, his testimonies, his law. Ultimately, we are talking about his word here. We are talking about God's word is true and trustworthy. It is reliable. And I want to turn to 2 Peter 1, 16-21 and take a look at that. So, uh, so please uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, 16-21. 2 Peter 1, 16-21. Please follow along with me. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we find ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is Peter here talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain with Jesus. And they, they, they witnessed with their very own eyes the Father appear in this, this form of a cloud, and they heard with their own ears the Father speak that this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. So they, they, they witnessed God 
with their own eyes and their own ears. But what does he say? He says that we have something that is far more trustworthy than even our own experience of seeing God. And he says that the word, the the scriptures that were written by men but inspired by the Holy Spirit, these are more reliable than even our eyewitness account of seeing God and hearing God. And so the word that we hold in our hands today, this is the word of God. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. And we can bank our lives on it, church. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Grudem says, God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. So God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. So God is trustworthy. His word is reliable. As you continue through verse 5, he says, Holiness befits your house. Holiness befits your house. The, the truthfulness of God is tied to the holiness of God. God is set apart. He is, he is distinct from us because he is completely true in all that he is and does. He is completely true in all that he is and does. His, his nature and his works, they cannot conflict with the reality that he is the true God, that he is set apart from us. And as, you, as, as we see the word house here, this is a reference to the temple of God. And so in the Old Testament, this is, this is how God would reveal himself to his people or have communion with his people was through the temple. And that's why they would go to the temple to worship. It was representative of communion with God. And so as we continue through the unfolding plan throughout scripture, we know that God's eternal holiness is ultimately revealed in the Son. Jesus was the perfect Son who lived among us, who dwelt with us, who tabernacled with us, put up a tent with us, walked this earth, and was completely perfect, set apart, holy. And he went to a Roman cross on behalf of sinners like you and me so that we might be made righteous, so that we might be made holy. So God's eternal holiness is revealed through the God-man, Jesus Christ. He took, on the, he took on the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven. If you're here this morning and you've never believed that good news, if you've never confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior and believed that he, had, he has died on the cross on your behalf, to forgive you of your sins, to, to make you right with God, to give you new life, then I urge you to respond this morning, to trust in him alone for salvation because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. God not only revealed himself, his holiness through Christ, 
But as you continue through, through, script, through the New Testament, you see now the Holy Spirit is now indwelling in believers. So God is in us. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And the entire collection of believers, those whom are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, they are now the living temple. We are now the living house of God. The, the, the church is the living temple of God, as, as Ephesians 2, 20 and 21 says. And Christ is the cornerstone of that holy temple. And so we as the church, the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, are now the house of God. Founded upon the rock, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. In light of this, in light of the holiness of God, in light of the fact that God has redeemed us, made us a new people, given us life, given us, given us his spirit, we ought to live lives of obedience to him. We ought to live holy lives. As Jesus says, be holy for I am holy. That is our call. And now we have the power to be able to do that because we have the spirit in us. And so what areas of your life are you living in disobedience to our Lord? What are the the sinful thoughts that bubble up into your mind throughout the day that maybe no one even in this room knows about? What what are those thoughts that just bubble up and and come up into your mind throughout the day that that you need to fight against and confess to our God and to maybe to a brother or sister as well? When are you tempted to be selfish and focused on your own self rather than considering those around you more important? To to put aside your own needs and, and serve and focus on those around you. When are you tempted to do that? Perhaps there's something that you ought to be doing that, that you're not doing. It's called a sin of omission not doing something that you ought to be doing? Is there, is there something in your life that you ought to be doing based off of Scripture but are not? Who is it in your life that you are at odds with that you need to forgive? Who are those people that you, you need to reconcile with and show grace just as our Lord has shown us grace? God's holiness ought to lead to our pursuit of holiness. And we do that together as a people of God, fighting together, confessing our sins together, praying for one another, striving for holiness together, holding each other accountable. So what areas of your life do you need to grow in holiness? God is true, and thus he is faithful. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. He cannot go against his own character. Brothers and sisters, hold fast to the word of God because it is reliable. It is the truth. This is the very word of God. We ought to trust God because he is holy, he is true, he is faithful. And in light of those realities of God, we ought to live lives of obedience. Last but not least, number five, God is the eternal king. God is 
the eternal king. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. God is sovereign over all things. He is the king. He is the ruler. No other God or thing rules. Our Lord rules. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king. How long? Forever. Forever. The eternal king. God is everlasting. He has no beginning. He has no end. God has just always been. He is everlasting. God reigns. As you see scripture, as you see the plan of of salvation unfold, you see God's reign and rule. First off, he's the creator. He spoke and all of this came into existence. He is reigning and ruling over the earth. And as we saw Psalm 104, he is clearly reigning and ruling, even today, the provider and the sustainer. Genesis 3.15, even after the fall, God promised that he would crush the head of the serpent one day. Genesis 12, God made the covenant promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through the seed, through his seed. Throughout Exodus, we see the story of, uh, of the Israelites being delivered from Egyptian slavery and God ruling and, and working in Pharaoh's heart, softening and hardening it. God was the one ruling over that. God is the one who delivered the Israelites, delivered his people from Egyptian slavery. He is the one who spread the water so that they could walk through it. He is the deliverer. He is reigning and ruling. And then eventually God leads his people to his prom- the, the land he promised to them. He provided that for them. He, was, he, he sovereignly worked so that that would happen. We could go on and on and on in Scripture about God reigning and ruling. In 2 Samuel 7, we see David's calling to be king of Israel. And God called David to rule over Israel, but there was something more there. In verse 13, it says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. In other words, David was pointing forward to a king who was going to reign and rule forever. And this, of course, is referring to King Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Our God didn't just rule and reign from his heavenly throne, although he does that. He came to this earth to be a lowly servant. He is a servant king. He came in order that he might be beaten and scorned and mocked and spit upon and ultimately hung on a tree to die in the place of us. 
That is what our king did. He didn't come to this earth to put on a crown that's made of gold and diamonds. He came to put on a crown of thorns and to die in our place, to shed his blood on the cross so that we could be forgiven. That is our king. But he didn't just stay in the tomb. On the third day, our king rose from the dead and eventually ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and is ruling and reigning even now. And not only that, our king, he will return one day. He will make all things new. He will rule and reign forever. And as as Philippians 2 says, every knee, every knee will bow to Jesus as Lord, as king. In light of these truths about our God, we ought to respond by worshiping, trusting, and obeying the majestic, mighty, and everlasting King. We ought to worship, trust, and obey the majestic, mighty, and everlasting King. God is majestic He is mighty, he is creator, he is trustworthy, and he is the eternal king. Have you realized these truths about our God this morning? Have you believed in Christ as savior this morning? If not, I urge you to repent of your sin, to turn away from your sin, to place faith in Christ for salvation. He is the only way of salvation. He is the only hope that we have. And so I urge you to respond this morning to our God who is the king of the world, who is mighty in power, who is trustworthy, who's the creator of all things. Turn to him, turn away from your sin and turn to him. I urge you to do that this morning. That is the only hope that we have of being rescued from the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from God forever. Trust in Christ this morning if you haven't. For those who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, once again, is the omnipotence of God just something you agree with in your mind? Or is it something you truly believe God does and works in your life? What areas of your life do you need to to trust God and his power? Is it a particular sin that you're struggling with? Is it a particular need in your life or a particular relationship in your life? Trust the king for blank. What is that blank for you? Trust the eternal king for blank. Fill that blank in. What do you need to trust our sovereign king, eternal king for this morning? And in light of who God is, once again, we ought to worship and obey him. He is completely deserving 
of that. Romans 12.1, as Pastor Ken has been talking about the last couple of weeks, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship. What area of your life do you need to repent of and obey God? What sin do you need to confess and turn away from? Where are you lacking in holiness? And how might you continue to grow in holiness? How could you do that together as a community with your base group, with those whom you're doing life with? How can you help each other to pursue holiness together, to put your arm around one another and to to fight against sin and to, to pursue righteousness? Our God is the one true God, and he alone is worthy to be worshiped and obeyed. It is our God alone that is completely trustworthy. Our God is majestic, mighty, and everlasting. He is the king of the universe. And this king, he left his heavenly throne to come and to to put on a crown of thorns to die in our place so that we might be right with God. And he He rose from the dead on the third day and he will return one day to make all things new, to judge the living and the dead and to reign and rule forever. So church, may these truths about our God cause us to to be enamored with God, to be in awe of God, to worship God, to trust God and to obey God with all of our being because he is the eternal king. Would you please pray with me, church?